Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Line Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been, and it always will be. Okay, welcome to White Line Fever, episode uh, 71, I think. Um, this is the first segment of the program, but the second part of our interview with Cormac Neeson from the answer, the answer, answer, answer. Um, what do you say in Northern Ireland? Answer or answer? The answer. The answer, of course. That's what we say here as well because we're all convicts. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> except in the free settling states, they say answer. Um, so, um, um, Cormac, I just wondered, um, you re-signed with Napalm um, very recently for this record. In this day and age, is that a big deal to re-sign with your record company? Does it mean you've jumped through a hoop and impressed them, or is it a, quite a sort of perfunctory thing? How does it work? No, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, we signed for this record and signed for another two as well, which will bring our tally up to four albums with those guys. Mm. And that kind of level of commitment in the music business is very rare mm. these days. You know, there's not... There's there's not a lot of money kicking around, so mm. so record companies don't just throw it around like like the good old days. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you know that at that certain level of stability that we I think have benefited from, especially you know this time round we were able to just block out any background noise and not mm. have to worry about the business side of things and just get on with doing what we do best, which is making music. And that was a nice feeling, you know, and and that's something we would take for granted. Yeah, being being winning that sort of uh, best new band in two thousand and five with um, classic rock. I mean, does that put pressure? Because because I suppose people when they win an award like that, they have they they kind of have visions of the future that are actually based on the past. I mean, they imagined uh, mansions in the Hollywood Hills and <laughs> you know what I mean, sports cars and yeah. that sort of thing. And 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 I just wonder when when the next big thing is not what the next big thing used to be. And and the media and and people like us move on to someone else. Is that a hard thing to adjust to? That then you just have to be a working band and you have to make ends meet. And that, you know what I mean? That the reality of it when when that kicks in is that a difficult yeah. transition? I mean, we've always just been a working band. Is all we've ever been. You know, it's we've we've won awards and and had accolades. You know, over the course of our our careers to date, but mm. you don't. You don't think about it too much. You just mm. get on with it. You know, you're you're constantly in a cycle in a in a in a full time touring band where you're either recording, you're either writing music, you're either recording music, or you're out in the road touring that mm. new music. And uh, you know, there's not that much time to think about anything else really. And mm. I don't think there's any point in in letting your mind wander too much either. You just kind of focus on making sure that every show is better than the one before and every mm. song's right up to scratch. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's always that's always been the kind of that's always been the way we've conducted ourselves, I think. Yeah. Do when you go into the studio, do you have a um uh, do, do you talk about we want this album to be this sort of thing or we didn't do enough of that last time or is every song its own entity and you just do your best? I mean, do, is is this record different from the last one in any sort of discernible way, you know? Well, yeah, I think in the past we have had that conversation. Um, but this time round, 
as as I say, we just tried to block out background noise. You know, we didn't want to feel any any pressure from record companies or management or even our own fans. You know, everybody's everybody's got an opinion about the kind of record a band should make. You know, based on their their previous work and and where they're at and whatnot. This time round, we just really blocked all that out and mm. concentrated on just having fun. You know, it almost felt like writing our first album again, just mm. writing for the sheer joy of making music. Mm. And uh, you know, I think I think this particular album has benefited from that. You know, it sounds nice and free. It sounds like we're having a good time. It's uh, it's quite a diverse album as well. You know, I mm. think it does justice to our musical tastes and. And, and we express ourselves as individuals and as a band on there. Mm. Um, and you know, as I say, we didn't, we didn't really think this one, think this one through. We just, we just let the music take it where, take us where it was going to take us. As, as much as you, as an artist or anyone who creates anything, you know, you want to stay true to what you want to do, and as long as you can earn a living, then that's fine. But surely there must be times when you are, you do put something out and you do sit back and wait for the feedback. What do people think of this? And like, I would have thought Nowhere Freeway from two records ago, that's the right title, isn't it? I would have thought it's the best. Like to me, it's one of the great rock songs of the last 15 years. I'm not pissing in your pocket. And, and you know, you must go, geez, we've got something great here. And you must sit back and wait for the reaction. And it must be hard not to either, well, at some point when you don't get airplay or other people don't pick up on it, there must be some disappointment that kicks in, or do you try not to think in those terms? You try not to listen to to, to reaction to things. Yeah, I mean, you do try and just get on with it. Um, but you know, whenever you put out, I mean, uh, there's still that that moment of anticipation when a record goes out because you put your heart and soul into this piece of work. And um, anything we put out, you know, I, I got an email from a guy in America there the other day asking did did we have any songs that we thought were special or interesting because he was he, he was stuck down stuff for tv shows you know mm. and i emailed him back saying well man i'm a little bit biased here but i think everything we put out is special <laughs> and interesting you know yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's the truth it sounds like my head's up my ass but that's the truth you know you're like we anything we record and put out there it's out there because we think it deserves to be heard mm. you know um I mean, once it's out there, it's it's just out of our control, um, and you need a few breaks along the way to to really get get the kind of airplay that that you would really dream about, you know. Um, and sometimes, yeah, it is disheartening. I mean, I I would I would read a lot of reviews, you know. If I'm online, kind of, you know, we would we would be heavily involved with our own Facebook and Twitter accounts mm. and, and and all the online stuff. And if a link pops up to, to an album review, I'll, I'll click on that link and I'll read it and see what mm. people are saying about it. Mm. And that's a nerve-wracking moment, you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. If, if a bad review was to pop up on that screen, it would really put me down, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I'd, I'd be down for a few days. But, you know, thankfully that doesn't happen that often. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, when it yeah. does, it, it really it really hits me hard because, you know, our music is, is such an important part of who we are. Um and it's it's you know it's very central to our lives. So um, to to if it doesn't get the credit we feel it deserves, it can be quite disheartening for sure. Yeah. Time for another song. All right, let's give "Last Days of Summer" a rattle.
Hey folks, this is Cormac Neeson here from The Answer. Check out our new record, Raise a Little Hell. You're listening to White Lane Fever. So welcome back to White Lane Fever, episode 71. Before I introduce our guests, a uh, bit of housekeeping, uh, WLF podcast on Twitter, White Line Fever on uh, Facebook and whitelinefever.ning.com. Come and join the party. Now, I've got a couple of uh, young up-and-coming uh, media people here who need the exposure. They've begged me to come on the show. Uh, <laughs> I've got Paul Kent and uh, Ben Iken uh, from NRL 360, which used to be on once a week, uh, but it's now on three times a week. How, how are you coping? Well, I'm not used to this much work. I'm a former professional rugby league player, so <laughs> generally a week for me entailed about eight hours. Uh, now it's pushed well past the 12-hour mark, so my, my brain's hurting. How are you going, Pika? I'm getting there. I uh, actually thought today was Wednesday. It's actually Thursday, so... Um... <laughs> It's only week two of the competition as well, so I've only got 28 weeks to get through it, so it won't be a problem. What's your day look like? What do you do? What, what time do you get in here? We're at uh, Artarman at Fox Sports. I get in pretty early just to try and knock out as much content uh, as I can, so headline topics. Mm. And uh, by the time PK gets in around lunchtime, then we attempt to kind of uniquely dissect it because the last thing you want to be doing is uh, speaking about all the things that have already been sort of delivered into the news cycle in the same way. Mm. Uh, so that's that's the challenge. I mean, one show a week last year, it was really easy. Mm. Now, three hours of content every week, it's a lot of talking, and there's not always a stack in the rugby league news cycle, uh, which might surprise some people. <laughs> um, so I guess the positive thing for us is it actually allows us to go into more positive territory because you can't manufacture negative news. Mm. Those people just look at you and think you're evil. Um, so we've been out of touch on some areas of the game that we wouldn't normally. Now, is it like a songwriting partnership? Someone comes up with the lyrics and someone else just comes up with the song ideas? Um, do you have definitive roles when you're deciding what you're going to discuss? I wouldn't say we've got definitive roles. Um, yeah, my my workday is different from Ben. I, I get up over the morning and, and start working on my column. All right, I never as... get up in the morning. It's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> well, as well as as well as the three shows, I write four columns. So I've sort of got to try and have the at least the, the back of that broken by the time I get in. Um, and then it's just a discussion thing. I obviously lean on my newspaper stuff. Ben leans on his uh, football background, and together it's I wouldn't say. One's got a specific role. I think we sort of we basically throw things at each other, don't we? I've got absolutely zero news sense. So the things I want to talk about, um, Kenny will say, are a bit train spotterish, so a bit too detailed. So I'm the, with you. Yeah. So the, the, the process normally goes is that across the day I keep uh, throwing some balls in the air, mm. ideas for discussion points, and he'll look at me and say, "You're either an idiot." Mm. There's no way that's coming in the show. Mm. Or, no, that's not a bad idea. Mm. And that's generally how the process works. So I just keep trying to come up with new little points of discussion that could potentially come into the show. And then I heavily rely on his news sense um, to finalise the rundown. Now, you've both got work to do this afternoon, so we'll just hit a couple of uh, recent issues and let you go. Um, the the foreign thing and the um, uh, Daly Terry Evans thing, and also the referees and whether they can be bagged or not by, by coaches. Are these just part of the sort of pantomime of rugby league? Like, players always change clubs and the fans fans um, who think they've got a good deal out of it are happy and fans who think they've got a bad deal out of it are unhappy. And also, bagging referees is just, you know, rugby league's an anti-authority sport. It was born out of rebellion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do these things actually 
matter beyond just giving people just grist for the mill that will soon be forgotten? Do they, is, there a deeper, is there a deeper meaning and importance for how we deal with them? I don't think so. I mean, you, you told me before, um, we were talking about things sitting in the green room, I think the room was brown, but you, had, you were saying that um, um, it does have an impact at junior level. The referees thing is actually a much more important issue than just whether an NRL coach can bag an NRL referee. You know? Yeah, you're right. But yeah. It's not like there's a whole heap of evidence tabled yeah. to support the decision that coaches in the NRL shouldn't talk about referees because this is the percentage of junior referees yeah. who are copying abuse yeah. uh, and not sticking around to continue yeah. to do the job. And that there's an absolute connection between the two. We assume there is. We feel there is. And likewise for the Kieran Foran and Daly Cherry Evans uh, contract saga mm. is that there's a lot of people out there that will tell you Kieran handled it beautifully mm. and Daly Cherry Evans just paraded himself around like a tart. Mm. And that's what I love about the Rugby League news cycle is that no one's ever uh, 100% right or 100% wrong. Mm. It's generally uh, your opinion is based on how you would handle that situation. Mm. So uh, everybody's got their own filter. We all mm. see it different ways and it's that contrast that makes our show easier to do is mm. that e- either of us, uh, PK or myself, can go hard on a, a particular issue and we know immediately the position that we take, 50% of our audience will disagree yeah. and we'll get uh, pushback and backlash. And... Hopefully only 50%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, one last question for you, Paul. I remember, strangely enough, a guy from Manly going to the Gold Coast, Ronnie Gibbs, in 19... 19- 87, and he signed early and it got out, and it was massive drama. And now, all these years later, my maths is very poor, I can't even add up the years without writing it down, but all these years later, we're talking about the same kind of thing. So, can we learn from it? Can we actually change it as far as a system where players change clubs, or are we going to be talking about it again in another 20 years? You know, uh, Look, it's 28 years later. Thanks, you're very good with maths. <laughs> look, uh, look, but the, look, that was a big story back then, and, and those stories were. I think probably more significant back then because mm. they were the big stories at the time of a player changed club. Now we've got all sorts of other things. I think the deeper issue with it all is that rugby league is now very much in a battle against other codes. Mm. And back in the 80s it wasn't. It was clearly the number one sport in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, the AFL has made such inroads over that time that we start to, we've got to be a little bit more strategic about how... We handle ourselves as a game. And also the game has got to be more strategic about how it presents itself in the public. And if Dave Smith is trying to attract three to four million people who are prepared to watch State of Origin but not prepared to watch the home and away games, then what you've also got to understand is that those people are also the ones that see these bad headlines, Mm. don't really dig beneath the surface. So for you and me who are involved in the game and, and love the game and... Uh, know all the, the nuances of the game. We just see it as part of this great pantomime. Mm-hmm. But as for people who are unfamiliar with the game and only really ever come across headlines, that's where the game has got an issue. And that's mm. the game has made a strategic decision to, to drive into that area mm. and to try and get those people. So if that's the case, then it needs to handle its efforts to move into that area far more cleverly than people saying, well, why would I follow this when all the Manly fans are blowing up because their two best players mm. have left? Like, let's remember, last year Manly lost three great forwards in Jason King, Anthony Watmau and Glenn Stewart. And, and Manly, Manly fans sat back and said, well, we've still got the two best halves in the competition, so we'll be OK. Mm. 
They're now gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what Manly are a rebuilding club now. Manly have gone immediately from a, a club that has threatened the Premiership for the past 10, 10 years, which is a significant achievement, to essentially now will be a, a, a development club and mm. a rebuilding club for the next... Certainly, next five years, mm. if not the next ten years, it will be ten years before they threaten for a grand final again. Mm. Um, and if you're an AFL fan, you go, "What is this sport where they talk about 2016 one week into 2015? What's what's going on there?" Thanks for joining us, uh, guys. Really appreciate it, and we'll see you again soon. Yes, yeah. and we can't wait to have you on NRL 360. Well, you've revealed, you've yeah. revealed it. Yeah, I reckon I could probably stuff it up between now and then. No. If I if I get caught taking a pee in a public place, or I get you know. Peptides. Peptides. <laughs> peptides, Mike, get you. Stay off the peptides. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, and now I have to... Uh, uh, pl- we're also on Stitcher. We're also on this new radio station, RL Internet Radio, 24-hour internet radio run by a school kid in England. What a great effort uh, that is. And that's uh, a pretty good effort, don't you think, to have a 24-hour rugby league radio station. And, um, uh, and here's some music, uh, new music from Thunder. And we'll be back after that.
misfit started up a band. Didn't have a clue and I didn't understand. Well, all of a sudden there were girls around. And the truth be told, we could barely make a This is Luke, and we're from the Union, and you're listening to White Lion Fever. Okay, welcome back to the program, and we're here with Ricky Warwick from uh, Black Star Riders. I just, um, obviously, listening to the record, and you know, we've only just got the opportunity to stream it in the last sort of 48 hours, so it hasn't really sure. sunk in. But um, I just wanted, like, some some of, some of the, um, uh, particularly the the, the, the title track, uh, Killer Instinct, uh, Blindsided. As a songwriter, and I believe you, you and Damon do most of the the core songwriting. Sure. Are you at this point in your life? Are you looking for inspiration, and and you you're basically telling stories, or are they still based on your own experiences and people you meet? Are you still sort of hungry for for, for that sort of um, uh, inspiration? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I'm still I'm always looking for inspiration, um, but you know, again, something will come back into your psyche that, from years ago that you're like, I remember that time, so and so, and you you know. That's the great thing about, about about memory, and is that something that you thought you'd forgotten will suddenly spark off an idea or a time or a place you went to or a story that was told to you by by a friend or a relative or something like that. And also, you know, time marches on, so every day, every month, there's new experiences. You, you learn and you you see what's going on around you. So, um, you know, in, in this life that we get to live, I mean, really, if, if if you should never really be lost, I don't think, for ideas. Mm. Um, there's always something going on that, that you can write about and have an opinion on, and that's really what they are. The songs are just opinions and, you know, um, stories that have come from my life and, and, and my upbringing and my childhood and, and, and what I've seen and what's going on around me right up to the present day. Can I be specific about Killer Instinct? Can you remember when the idea of that song, the theme, first popped into your head? Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we were playing um, a gig in Yorkshire in England, and it was Robbie Crane's first gig, our, our new bass player, um, with the band. And uh, we always have an acoustic guitar in the dress room, you know, and uh, I just suddenly there, this idea for this riff came into my head out of nowhere, and I picked it up and I started playing the riff on the guitar. And Scott Gorham walked in and went, what's that you're playing? And I said, that's just a new idea. He goes, it's cool. He says, you're playing it too fast. He said, slow it down. I always have a tendency to play stuff too fast because I'm an old punk. And, uh, <laughs> Scott, Scott was right. As soon as he, he slowed it down, it had this groove and this feel to it. And Dave and I sort of took took, took the idea away and worked on it and came up with um, you know a bridge and stuff like that. And then I wrote the lyrics about two or three days later, um, just watching 
Well, a couple of things. There was a lot of protests going on back in Northern Ireland at that time. Mm. Unfortunately, as there tends to be a lot of, um, there's a lot of protests about flags in Northern yep. Ireland last year, and a lot of people marching and you know rioting and basically shitting on their own doorstep. And I just sort of looked at the futility of that and thought, you know, really, after all this time, you know, 40 years of this, we still haven't learned that that this doesn't get us anywhere. And you know, uh, and I was taking that on board, and I was reading the Muhammad Ali autobiography at the same time as well, and I just his whole outlook on life about how he, his work ethic and how he had that fighter instinct to be the, you know, the greatest heavyweight champion in the world. And, you know, the lyrics just sort of evolved from that. And it's actually quite a positive song. It's actually going about going out there and, and dealing with your demons and, and, and finding that inner strength and trying to get through uh, all the stuff that life throws at you, you know? Yeah. Well, it'd be pretty silly if you would ask another question now and that's a perfect segue to the next song. So why don't we play The Killer Instinct? <laughs>
Mike from Black Star Riders here, people, and you are listening to White Line Fever. Okay, welcome back to White Line Fever, second part of our interview with Craig Songrady from BB Steel. Maybe we should sort of uh, do this. Could be the nostalgia five or six minutes, eh? Um, well, how yeah. how did you end up? Could, do you remember how you did? You always sing as a kid, and um, and was Boss your first band, second band, tenth band? What, what, what's the story? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, I did. You know, I, I kind of, I worked at uh, GMH as a real young lad, had an apprenticeship, and I felt that I didn't fit in because everyone, you know, I loved growing my hair long and listened to rock and metal, and everyone else had the into the footy short back inside. So I, you know, I stood out a bit, and I, I was, uh, you know, the pork chop in Siberia <laughs> uh, mentality. So I thought, you know, I've got to find, you know, a group of people that I can actually gel with, and uh, and I, I was really young, like sixteen, I think it was, and. Um, I had a jam with some guys and they were right into uh, Bad Company, Free, uh, Purple and uh, Hendrix, Zeppelin and went, did my first gig at a high school and after about a week's rehearsal and hardly knowing all the lyrics and um, it, it was pretty amazing feeling, you know, and uh, it, I was hooked straight away. Mm. So that band was, it's actually a pretty good band, you know, when you think back then, it was great players, you know, they're all really cool players. They're all group players into the right people. And then um, I think uh, I had another band after that that I did a couple of uh, shows in Adelaide with, which a band called Relic, which was really funny. I was really young. I was still 16 and I couldn't get into venues to do the gigs. I had to lie. Mm. And uh, I remember after a Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow gig at uh, the Festival Theatre in Adelaide and um, Cozy Powell, Jimmy Bain, Tony Carey, who else was came back? Well, they all came back to the gig we were playing at. And the, it was amazing because they all got up on stage and jammed. Wow. And I jammed with those guys. Blackmore didn't come back, but uh, the, the rest of them did. Actually, I got friendly with Jimmy Bain. I kind of met him a couple of times after that when I was living in L.A. But, um, yeah, it was a great experience. And being that young, thinking, oh, my God, they're my idols, you know? Like, <laughs> these guys are fantastic. And... Uh, so I knew that I had to leave Adelaide to actually do something and, uh, you know, further on the music career. So I had a, I was on the dole. I think I went on the dole because I knew that I couldn't work if I was going to Sydney. And I got in a Morris 1100, packed in an Ampeg with a uh, big SVT with a 8x10 box, put it in the back of the uh, Morris 1100, which was honestly the bumper was nearly dragging along the ground <laughs> without, with, with, honestly, it was Laurie Marlowe. You know Laurie Marlowe? Um, from no. Kevin. Oh, yeah, yeah, Laurie yeah. from Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was Laurie and I, because he lived in Adelaide, and we, we said, let's do it. And we had, like, you know, a couple of doll checks and went to Sydney in this uh, a Morris 1100. And uh, we got to Sydney and didn't know what, you know, it was like the big smoke for us, and uh, a couple of green Adelaide guys and got there and put a band together and started jamming with Kelly from um, Swanee who was with Swanee at the time, Jimmy Barnes's uh, brother, and uh, had a smoking band. And um, what happened then, they kind of got a couple of other guys in and they wanted to call the band Heaven. But but around that time, I met Kevin Pratt as well, who was an amazing young guitar player. He was about 16, 17 at the time. And he just blew me away, his style, and caught up with um, another guy called Theo, um, played some drums, 
awesome, awesome drummer, had a great image, remind me of Cozy Powell a lot. Um, <laughs> got together a great band, and then Heaven asked me back with Michael Browning knocking at my door saying, uh, Craig, if you don't join Heaven again, uh, you're going to be black banded from the Sydney rock scene, so you better um, join Heaven. So I said to the guys, and which was going to be boss, uh, guys, I've got to do this Heaven thing because I'll never gig again. And uh, so played with Heaven for a while because I think uh, Alan Fry was in the band and he left. And uh, I joined them for a few months. I think it was about five months. And then Warner Brothers uh, um, approached me, uh, John Brommel, because he loved some of the songs I wrote in Boss because they'd had some stuff and he wanted to hear us play. So I put the, the band, which was Boss, together and went to the Manly Hotel and the only people in the audience was John Brommel and a, a woman in the promotion department. Loved the band, absolutely loved it. Said you perform like you know you're in front of ten thousand people. I think there was a barman and table and chairs and those two. And uh, yeah, the rest of the history. We we ended up signing with Warner's, our publishing. Uh, then we uh, went to RCA to do the recording side of the uh, album, Step on It, mm. and. Uh, Recorded that at the Music Farm in Kiribu in uh, North, I think it's northern New South Wales. And, uh, yeah, got the Boss album out of that. So Boss and Doobie Still is about every, all I've done, really, apart from singing with... Uh, I sing with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, I have, doing the Queen show. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, done that. Did Adelaide United, wrote their club song, which was a big anthem. Mm. Done a few things like that, you know, performance in front of a 20,000... Screaming uh, soccer fans. You know, I was you told when I was a kid that my co- my cousin Sammy he actually choreographed the Dancing Queen video, so he, he's like he was a oh he, wow he was in ballet, so he must have he must have helped guide that that girl you know um, in that video. What, what do you remember of that video shoot? Oh, the girl, that was a classic. The girl, <laughs> the red-headed girl in the video, she was actually in the Australian Ballet Company. Yep, and. Um, there was a couple of other girls that were in a dancing school too, which is, that was an awesome. There's so many wardrobe malfunctions when they were doing their goose step. You'll see it in there. <laughs> I mean, we're talking serious wardrobe malfunction, you know, which eyes were popping out. But uh, that, yeah, that video apparently got an award in England for best video done under 10,000 US. All right. Which was fantastic. So you might have heard that back um, from your, your cousin. Oh, your. <laughs> Yeah, yeah but, uh, it's, uh, maybe we can find the MP3 and play that song next day, Dancing Queen. If we can't find it, I hope you can send it to me, and then we'll come back. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Dancing Queen. Yeah, there's some killers on that album, but uh, that one's a uh, yeah, that's a real poppy one. I I really personally didn't want to go down the poppy road, but I think the record company, when you're signed with a major, they kind of do a lot of they did a lot of direction, and yeah. uh, they just thought we were too heavy for. Uh, that's all even heavy for Countdown with that song. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and now, I mean, heavy, what's heavy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nothing. It's so lightweight compared to what's out there now.
white line fever. Going around and land down under. Going to turn around the corner way down yonder. <laughs> and I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. And you get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever. Rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.